This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Acts 1, chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their own language, al This is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may its camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives personally. We thank you for the work that you're doing inside this city, Lord. And we thank you for calling us alongside you in the work that you're doing, Lord. I ask that you would do deep heart surgery today, Lord. I ask that you will prep the the soils of our heart to receive your word, Lord. I ask that you would guide your word, Lord, and that you would cause it to bear fruit, Lord. We lift your name up this morning. You are our king. You are our God, Lord. We surrender our hearts and our mind to you that we will glorify you with our lives all the days of our lives. We give you all the honor. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. amen. So for, for, for some of you that wasn't here last week, we kicked off our series in the book of Acts. I'm super excited about it. We're going to journey through the book of Acts for for almost a year, which is a big deal. Because it means that we're going to dive in and tear this thing apart and see everything that God is showing us inside of it. 
We're not going to, like, rush through anything. Last week, Pastor Aaron preached, and I'll talk about Pastor Aaron. You don't see him here today because he's out in Peoria preaching the same text over there in, in Peoria, so continue to keep that congregation and him in prayer. So last week, he, he set the stage, and what I want to do is sort of like um, get you caught up from last week and transition in to over here, especially for some of you that wasn't here last week. The book of Acts is a letter that's written by the Apostle Luke. And in the beginning of the book, he addresses a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was a higher-ranking official. You could tell this because he addresses him as most honorable Theophilus. And whatever is going on here, he is writing out a, a, a witness statement to Theophilus concerning Jesus. So many people look at the book of Acts as part one to the book, part two to the book of Luke. So both of these books, he also he addresses Theophilus in, in his writing out his witness of what happened. So when you look at this, this is what you picture inside your mind. Now, I, re I remember working at O'Reilly's, and there was an incident that happened at work. And when this incident happened, I was a part of the incident and also um, a witness to other things that happened inside the incident. So they involved all the higher-up people concerning the in incident and sent someone down to, to come talk to me about it. And what that person uh, did, he said, hey, listen, all right, great. I want to hear what you have to say. I want you to write out your witness events so, of, of events so that we have it in writing what you're saying is going on. So when you're looking at the book of Luke and you're looking at, at Acts, this is what's going on. Luke is writing out his, his testimony, his witness of what's going down or what had went down, and he's writing it to Theophilus. Now, in Luke, when he's writing, Christ has, has this a physical body and through the power of the Holy Spirit is displaying the kingdom of God and then he gets crucified. And then in Acts, the church has become united with Christ, members of his resurrected body, through which the power of the Holy Spirit continues to display the kingdom of God. So both the book of Luke and the book of Acts was about Jesus. One was about what Jesus did before the crucifixion, and the other one was about what, what Jesus did after the crucifixion. One was about what he did personally in his physical body. The other one, what he did corporately through the church that has now become members of his body. So it's this ongoing theme, an ongoing talk about Jesus, what Jesus did. And here we're looking at what he did via his spirit. What he did in part one in Luke was through the spirit. And then what he did here is through the spirit operating through the members of the body, the church. So we closed out last week, and if you, were, if you was here and you remember, we closed out last week with Jesus is ascending, and the disciples are, are looking at him, and they're watching him ascend into the sky. 
And then the disciples are challenged by the angels. The angels show up next to them, and they're like, well, why are you just standing here watching him ascend? He's going to come back the exact same way that he left. Now, the reason why the angels challenge them, don't just sit there and just let them continue to, to just gaze upon Jesus raising, is because the disciples was given instructions by Christ before he ascended, and there was no way for them to fulfill the instructions or to fulfill their purpose by just idly watching. Just standing and just waiting and just idly watching. There was going to be no way for them to fulfill the instructions or purpose that was given to them by Christ. Last week in verse 4, Jesus gives his disciples two instructions. One, he says, don't leave Jerusalem. He lets them know, don't scatter, don't, don't go nowhere else. Stay here. Don't leave Jerusalem. And two, he says, wait for the promise. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the promise. These are the two instructions that he gives. Now, next week, we will look into why Christ intentionally told them not to leave Jerusalem. There was a reason why he said that. There was a reason why it was very important that they stayed specifically in Jerusalem. And we're going to cover that text next week in Acts 2. But today, we're going to talk about his instructions to wait on the promise. We're going we're gonna to look at that. Now, there was two promises that they was waiting on. A, they was waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. Christ had told them the Holy Spirit is going to come, and they was waiting on, on that promise. Now, in regards to that promise, he tells them the Holy Spirit is going to come in a few days. So they have a time frame here of, of when the Holy Spirit is going to come. Within a few days, he's going to come, so they, they sort of have something connected to it. But then they were also waiting on the promise of the return of the Messiah, which is why they asked him, when are, when are you going to restore Israel? This has everything to do with when he would return. But in regards to that, he says, no, I, I have no idea. I don't even know when this is going to happen. So on one end, they're waiting for a promise that they have an idea is going to happen in a couple of days. And on the other end, they're waiting on this other promise that has to do with his return, has to do with the restoration of Israel. And they have no idea when this is going to happen. Is he going to ascend today and return tomorrow? I don't know. Is it going to be next week, next month, another thousand years? Whatever it is, he tells them to wait. And I think it's, it's so much for us to learn in looking at how they waited. As far as, the, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, when we think about them waiting, we think about in, in context to us, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, we today, we are recipients of what they waited for because they entered in before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But we enter in after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
So we're not in the same boat as them in that context because they entered in before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, in believing the Holy Spirit does this work, but then Jesus is talking to them about this event that's going to happen, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But this event has already happened. So for us, we're not waiting for a second event. We're not waiting for this other time where Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit because he's poured it out already for all those that would ever believe inside of him. They would have that same spirit. So today we're not sitting here as a church waiting for the outpouring of the spirit. And I'm not going to spend too much time on that today because next week we'll be talking, we'll be going to, into Acts 2, and that's when the pouring out of the Spirit happened. And we're going to dive in. Matter of fact, this whole book is about the works of the Spirit, the acts of the Spirit through the church. So we're going to spend plenty of time looking into that. But that's what's, what differs us from them in that regards because we enter into this thing like that. And we're not waiting for a second event. We're believing in what has already happened and wanting to be recipients of that thing right there. But one thing that we're still in fellowship with them on, still in fellowship with the early church, is in regards to waiting on the promised return. Waiting on him to return. He ascended and they were waiting, when are you going to return? And what I want us to, to connect ourselves to, like we need to connect ourselves to them. We are a part of what started back then. Like these aren't two events. They're here and we're over there. We are a continuation of what gets started right there. So as they're waiting for the return of, of their Messiah, we still today in, in, in fellowship with them are still waiting for the return of the Messiah. What I, what I don't want us to miss is the glory that's found in waiting. Not many people look at waiting like that. See, if we're going to learn from the early church the glory found in waiting, then our perspective on waiting needs to change. What we think about waiting, how we view waiting. Many of us, when we, when we think about waiting, we associate it with wasting time. When we think about waiting, we associate it with procrastinating. You want to get there. You want to get from point A to point B. And all you can think about on your mind is waiting. The time spent waiting. And we don't want to wait. We want to get right there. A lot of it is, 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 is the, how we are, are brought up. Like most of us are brought up in societies where everything is fixed. So you don't have to wait. Don't cook nothing on the stove. Pop the microwave. But waiting and procrastinating is two totally different things. Proper waiting and procrastinating. Procrastinating is hesitating on doing something that you should be doing. But waiting is a totally different thing. Now, the posture of waiting here wasn't one of wasting time, but trusting God and his timing and eagerly preparing an expectation. 
That's a different thing right there. Trusting God and his timing, Lord. You know your timing. I trust you. You are the author of all these things, and I believe you, and I am eagerly preparing an expectation of what you're going to do as I wait. It's like waiting for someone to pick you up. Someone say, yo, we're going to go to this place, this place that you really look forward to going to. And say, I'm coming to come pick you up. You don't sit there in your PJs and your chonies all day long. <laughs> you're like, dudes is coming to pick me up. Hopefully you jump in the shower, you wipe the cold out your eyes. But you're expecting them to come. Now, if they one of those dudes that was like, yeah, I'm going to pick you up. And you know they ain't coming to pick you up. <laughs> then you may just chill in your chonies all day long. Like, I'll see. The thing here is when you believe it, when you believe it, there's certain things that you do that expose that you believe it. And when you don't believe it, then you don't do those things because you don't really believe it. But if you believe it, there's certain things. If, if you believe what is said is going to happen, is going to go through, there are certain things that you do in preparation for it to happen. It's just a side effect of it. If her mother said she was going to come home and whoop that tail... I knew she wasn't joking. <laughs> Books and my pants and everything. <laughs> Didn't work though. She was a little smart. But um <laughs> But it's 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 how they waited. It's how they waited. There's a few things that I see about the posture of the early church as, as they waited for the promise that I think that we can get something from. One of the things you see here is they had this high value of the role of women in the kingdom. Luke is writing this thing down. He's giving his account. And when he's giving his account, he starts dropping all these names, all oh, Peter and Philip. And, and he's going through all these names, all these people that are there with them inside the upper room. But one thing he doesn't skip over, he says, and the women. Now, when he says, and the women, it's like, man, he's like, and the women. Because some of these ladies, they was holding it down harder than a lot of these men that was inside that room. Like some of these ladies, they had been with Jesus, followed him to the cross. When all the dudes dipped, they were still there to the back, still waiting. And now here they are over here at the upper room. They, and the women. He like, oh, all these guys was there. Oh, and plus, I don't even know all those names, but these ladies was holding it down. I need to make sure they're accounted for inside this list. The reason why it was important for him to point out the women is because it was uncommon inside their culture. It was uncommon for, for, for women and guys to be in such kind of cahoots, whatever they was planning on. But what he was displaying 
was the culture of the kingdom of God, where the role of women was, was equally important as the role of men. See, the thing here, if the church would never be an accurate reflection of the kingdom of God without the role of women in church being highly valued. And I'm not just talking about relocated to a certain section of the church. But the fact that they are an integral part of it. Also, what you see going on here is the witness of being on one accord. Now, this was important because when Christ came on the scene, Israel was all waiting for the Messiah, but they were separated in how they was waiting. They had these different expressions of their faith and how they waited. And some of them thought, man, I should wait like this. And others thought, we should wait like that. We're going to live in the mountains or we're going to be integral members of the government. And they had all these different things, but they were separated in that. The only thing they all agreed on was that the Messiah was coming. Basically, they, they, they all had different theology. The most part, each thought theirs was the, the, the right one. Much like church today, where a lot of different churches and a lot of different theology, and because of how they view things, they miss the one main thing. Christ strategically comes, and when he comes, he didn't go to one of those sects specifically and said, yes, you got it. But instead he comes and strategically picks people and uses people from each sect or expression of faith so, so that his bride, his body, his church will be united around him, not the different expressions. So that he would be the thing that united Israel, not their theology, but him. Outside of him, they would stay divided. So many ways like the church today. It was important for us to catch that they were together on one accord. So before Christ leaves, he gives them the instructions to, to, to wait. And despite the fact inside that room, we have people from different backgrounds, different financial brackets, different genders. They were together, united on one accord. There was no division. And division is one of the biggest stumbling blocks of the church today. By far. In John 17 and 21, Jesus directly ties the unity of the church being on one accord with, this, with, with its witness of who he is to the world. In 17, 20, 17 and 21, it reads like this. He's praying. He's praying for the church. And in his praying for the church, he says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the unity of the church becomes a witness to the fact that Christ is real, which also means then the separate, diverse, and, and, and broken up nature of the church becomes a stumbling block to people believing that Christ is real. This is why he puts it out there. Knowing that this is going to be an issue, he knows I'm gonna, i got to pray for him. Because people are going to look at them and, and, and be like, how could he be real when they are so separated, so deeply divided? If he was that good, that real, it would be a no-brainer, right? Another thing you see here, is they wasn't just all together inside the upper room on a one chord playing board games and stuff like that. They was up there, and it said that they was devoted to prayer. Another thing about the posture of waiting, a deep devotion to prayer. The fact that he said they were devoted to prayer is a big deal here. See, prayer is this, this intimate fellowship with God. Prayer is, is, is a character trait of the church. Like someone knows that you are a member of the church, or a part of the church, a, a member of the body. They should know that, man, prayer is the second nature to you. That's what you do. It's what you do. It's a character trait of the church. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17, it says, he says, pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean, so, I, so you're just praying all day long and then your boss got to fire you because you don't do no work. You're just praying all day. But it means that prayer has become a lifestyle. Intimate relationship with God has become a lifestyle. Constantly communicating with the God that lives inside of you has become a lifestyle for you. Prayer has been truncated to, to, to the most smallest and insignificant parts of our lives. We just do it to hurry up to get on to the thing that we think is more important. Like a table full of really yummy food. And someone says, let's pray. <laughs> then that one person like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> let's hurry up and get this prayer out before we start service. Let's hurry up. And, as if prayer wasn't the root and heart of all those things because you're fellowshipping with God and what you're about to do, even if it's eating food. So prayer becomes this, this, this very, very, very important DNA of the fabric of who we are. Where we got to ask ourselves over and over again, how, what does my prayer life look like? How much time do I spend with my God? And because we don't spend the time that we should, we have no idea what his voice even sounds like. So I'm confused. I don't know if the Lord is telling me to do this or if the Lord is telling me to do that because I don't know his voice because I spend no time with him. I'd rather read books about him. He said he was devoted to prayer. The 
partial you see in the early church as they waited for the Spirit. It, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't just to obtain the Spirit, but it was to a continual posture throughout the, the entire New Testament. Like afterwards, they would continue fight for the unity of the church. Afterwards, the, you continue to see these things about women that was doing their thing. Afterwards, there was this continued push on prayer. It wasn't just to get the Holy Spirit. You'll miss it if you think that's what it is. That's when people start saying stuff like, what you did to get it is what you got to do to keep it. I've heard that said, what you did to get it is what you got to do to keep it. The problem with that is it becomes about you. You become the end goal and the purpose. I did this to get it, and I'm going to do this to keep it. What you did to get that wife is what you got to do to keep that wife. Now, if you're trying to do things to get the wife and stuff, that's when you messed up. Because we need to be doing things to, to align our hearts with God as we're praying for God to gift us with the wife. Or the husband, or the job, or the kids. It was a posture to align their hearts with the heart of the Father. And the Holy Spirit was a free, undeserved gift, not an earned winning, not a payment for services rendered. Yes, you lingered long enough, let me reward you. That's not what happened there. Our posture needs to be one as to align our hearts with the heart of the Father in all things and see all things that he gives us along the way as gifts. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this gift in my wife, this gift in my husband, this gift in my children, this gift in my church. But they aren't the end goal, and it wasn't me trying to just obtain them. I'm looking for you. You have just given me more ways to glorify you. Then you see in verse 15, I love the fact that, that Peter puts it this way. He says, in 15 he says, he says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers I thought that was notable. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. You see, the thing is, Peter was struggling. He was having a hard time. Where does this new boldness come from? The Holy Spirit hadn't fallen yet. I mean, last time we hear about Peter, he was, he was the dude that was like, Jesus, ride or die, whatever. Send him come. Got your back. Then he was the one, and Jesus was like, really? If you really knew. He was the one, after the third time denying him, was broken at the idea of what he had done. He was the one that felt, felt, felt withdrawn now about his sin, but then there's something that happened with him between those times and this time. Something that frees him up. He had this conversation with Jesus after the resurrection. 
but Jesus forgives him and restores him. His sin was crushing him, but, but, but in an act of forgiveness, Jesus restores Peter and then calls him to, to deeper ministry, deeper love, deeper sacrifice. There are some of us in here that are held captive by past sins that we've already repented for. And the Lord's like, man, I've forgiven you. Luke 7 and 36 teaches us those that have been forgiven much, loves much. And, 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 it, and the Lord is like, man, he, he's calling us today into a deeper level of love, a deeper level of sacrifice. Why? Because you have been forgiven much. You're free to serve him wholeheartedly. He knows the depths of your sin, but he freed you because you're going to serve him from a deeper level of love. And he's called you to a deeper level of sacrifice. He walked in the freedom of his forgiveness. And then in those days, he stood up. Peter called them to the gospel. When he called them to the gospel, and this when you start seeing all this talk about, okay, man, hey, listen, okay, Judas was gone, uh, we need to fill that slot. And it wasn't that they were just bored and trying to figure out something deep to do. Peter was looking at scripture. The Holy Spirit was, was inspiring them and showing him how this scripture was relevant to him right here, right now. And what he wanted to do was be obedient to scripture. It's funny how sometimes, sometimes we can read the Bible, we can read Scripture, and the Bible says, I should be doing this, but I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to give me confirmation to be obedient to it. Interesting. All Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's there. He didn't just sit in deep thought, examining it in so many different ways, waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to it. But the Holy Spirit showed him, this is true, this is to you, now let's start living inside of it. In those days, Peter stood up and started saying, listen, this is what we need to do to be obedient to Scripture here. Let's find another guy to replace Judas. And he started connecting it to because it says right here, and it started connecting the dots. Listen, in their waiting, in their humbling themselves, and in their, their waiting, we have much to learn because what you see is a people that was on one accord. We can get that. Now, when we think about being on one accord, listen, I'm not just talking about at a church level, the function of church service on Sundays and stuff, but a people on one accord in the home, in every aspect of life where the believers are able to come together, but no one understands there's one thing that's always going to tie it together. That's Christ. He will always be the mediator. 
they're waiting, you see a people devoted to prayer as part of their livelihood, preparing for what they was expecting. In their waiting, you see a people that see the true value and worth of both men and women in the kingdom of God. And in their waiting, you see a people that had made up their mind to be obedient to Scripture as a way to walk this thing out. Now, next week, we're going to dive into Acts 2. And that's when this gets lit. That's when the Holy Spirit sets things on fire, like literally. Tongues of fire, like... This is where the Holy Spirit is poured out. Next week, we're going to go into Acts 2, and that's where the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then the rest of the books of Acts is is about the huge things that the Spirit does through the church. But what I want to say here is you don't get to be an Acts 2 Christian without first being an Acts 1 Christian. The extraordinary is prepared for by the ordinary. The extraordinary is prepared for by the mundane. I want to close with this quote from James K.A. in his book, You Are What You Love. Here he talks about the importance of our ordinary practices. He says, discipleship is a kind of immigration from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. In Christ, we are given a heavenly passport. In his body, we learn how to live like locals of the kingdom of God. I love that he phrased it like that. See, the locals, they know the way. The locals, they're familiar with it. As opposed to tourists or people that are just visiting. We're not tourists of the kingdom of God. We're not visitors of the kingdom of God. We are the locals of the kingdom of God. That should be obvious. He says, such an immigration to a new kingdom isn't just a matter of being teleported to a different realm. We need to be acclimated to a new way of life, learn a new language, acquire new habits, and unlearn the habits of the rival dominion. Christian worship is our enculturalization as citizens of heaven, subject of the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We thank you for what you've called us on as a, as a church, as, as your people, Lord. And it's our hearts and our desires to be submitted to you, Lord. We look to align our hearts with you, Lord. Help us to be obedient to your word, Lord. Help us to be reflections of your kingdom and how we live and how we act and how we think, Lord. Help us to be witnesses to the reality that you are real, Lord. pray you do those things that only you can do, Lord. We thank you for your continued work, and we thank you for calling us to fellowship with you on it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.